1: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
2: Welcome to Crime 3, a podcast about crypto crime brought to you by Decrypt Studios in partnership with TRM Labs. this series will explore the new and bizarre world of crypto crime. We'll profile some of the most absurd crypto criminals you've probably never heard of, as told by the very crypto crime hunters who track them down. And there is probably no better crypto crime to start with, in that vein, than the very curious case of the Church of the Invisible Hand. Now, when I say the word crypto you're probably thinking about money, maybe about Ponzi schemes, or maybe on the other side of things about the future of finance, sure. But either way, love it or hate it, you're thinking about crypto as money. But some people think about crypto differently. To these people, crypto is more than a tool or a financial asset. It's a state of mind, a means through which to release themselves from the earthly shackles of modern life, from taxes, from tracking, from data collection. To these people, crypto is more than just a financial system. It's a religion, a belief system in and of itself. And if you're acting in the name of a religion, especially a religion that rejects laws and institutions, then can anything you ever do really be illegal? That brings us to today's crime, to a story of faith, conspiracy, loss, and betrayal, to the church of the invisible hand. And here, as always, to help me dissect this dastardly crime— we have Airy Redboard. Uh, Airy Redboard is global head of policy at TRM Labs, the blockchain intelligence company. He's worked as assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, where he investigated and prosecuted terrorism, espionage, threat finance, and crypto related cases. He worked at the U.S. Treasury, working for the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. He's worked to take down Weapons of mass destruction proliferators, drug kingpins, other rogue actors. We're talking Iran, we're talking Syria, we're talking North Korea, we're talking Venezuela. And here he is today. Ari, uh, welcome to Crime 3.
1: Thank you. I know that is all uh, a mouthful, Sander. Uh, yeah, I no, really excited to, to be here with you today and to talk through crypto-related crime and, and how we investigate it. So, Ari, you have dealt with uh, a lot of seemingly
2: scary stuff. Uh, a lot of cyber crime, a lot of crypto crime, and I guess to people who aren't as familiar with that that sounds i imagine somewhat scary that there 's this entire new frontier of criminals who you can 't see and you don't know where they 're coming from, and they can take whatever they want and they can go wherever they are and they exist in the air. I guess as someone who's experienced with with dealing with these types of criminals, is it really that scary or are these people really uh that untraceable
1: yeah no it it's a great question, and I think it 's really a paradox, right you know the same qualities that make cryptocurrency such a force for good, cross-border value transfer at the speed of the internet, also make it attractive to illicit actors who want to move more funds faster than ever before. Uh, But to your question, it is traceable. Every transaction on a public blockchain like Bitcoin is logged, it is transparent, it's traceable, it's immutable, it's forever. So you can go back and investigate fraud and financial crime in new and innovative ways, you know, the blockchain where crypto lives and moves is this open ledger where we can investigate financial crime in new and innovative ways. And look, as we've moved now to this digital battlefield, to a world where we, we live in the digital space, blockchains actually enable better financial crime investigation than ever before, and really kind of excited to dig in with you into that world today and in this series.
2: So, so then, if that is this whole new frontier in which you can have a certain type of crime hunter or analyst or, or whatever you might call it, who can go after those types of criminals, what do those teams look like? Like at the FBI or the CIA, for example, or you know, in the federal government, is it the same teams that are working to capture traditional financial criminals? Is it is it specialists? Is it is it tech people who get into crime hunting, or crime hunting people who get into tech, or what are those people like? Yourself included.
1: I mean I'd say over the last decade or so we've seen this cadre of blockchain analytics users blockchain analytics like TRM those who are power users of these tools who are tracking and tracing the funds we see them go after North Korean cyber criminals you know Russian money launderers terrorist financiers and sort of this proliferation of scams and frauds this is the group from the FBI from IRS criminal investigations from Homeland Security from Secret Service from the DEA there are cadres of these fraud and financial crime investigators who are literally following the money on blockchains to build great cases. And uh, we are so lucky to have two of those really extraordinary investigators here with us today to walk us through this case. So without further ado, we'd love to welcome Jennifer Vanderveer. Jennifer is the head of product at TRM Labs and spent 14 years with the FBI as a special agent specializing in cyber matters and was a subject matter expert in blockchain intelligence and cryptocurrency tracing on the FBI's virtual currency response team. So you ask, are there people out there like this? There's really no better example than Jennifer Vanderveer. Jennifer, welcome. Welcome to the show.
3: Oh, thank you, Ari. It's very nice to be on, and uh, nice to chat with you as well, Sander.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for joining us.
3: You asked a question of sort of what what sort of people made up these teams. And I I, I think it's all of it, right? Like I came from a little bit of a tech background. I worked traditional counterintelligence crime through the FBI for a long time and then got into crypto just because I ran across a case. But I've run into people that were tech experts that love crypto, people that learn crypto. It's all over the map, just like you're going to find in the crypto space itself. Different people from different different backgrounds get drawn to it. And it's really fascinating what they do and they, what they bring there when they get there.
1: Awesome. And what a great opening to welcome our second investigator, Chris Hoffmeister. Chris is on TRM's global investigations team. He spent over 18 years with U.S. federal law enforcement, including four years overseeing cryptocurrency intelligence and investigative support at Homeland Security Investigations (HSI). Chris, welcome! Welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Ari. Uh, it's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Great, great transition. Like, I just want to say, like, I'm a perfect example of one of those people who does not come from a tech background who. Didn't learn coding in school. Does not have an engineering background. Was not a specialist. You know, I started my career with customs and doing financial cross-border financial crime and trade fraud. And when I got into cryptocurrency, I was I was helping to investigate financial cross-border financial like bulk currency smuggling. So you know, like, I'm a good example of that that investigator at a, at a law enforcement agency that you know organizations like TRM and like and loads of other people out there like we we enable good investigators who are not so-called crypto people to do the job?
1: It, it's such an important point, Sander. And I, I think, look, there's no such thing as crypto crime, right? Crypto is now a way where bad actors move funds in all kinds of different crimes. So what you really have are just great investigators. They now have blockchain intelligence like TRM as one more tool in their toolbox to do the job that they've been doing so for so long. And as we move into a digital world, Right. You know, as we first got into cell phones, we needed people who were able to track and trace those and and understand what's inside them for evidence. Now, the evidence is on the blockchain. The blockchain is the crime scene. And people like Jennifer and Chris have just done this extraordinary job in government and now at TRM and investigating these cases.
2: Well, I'm glad we have such an excellent and knowledgeable panel here to discuss these crimes, and I specifically want to get now into the Church of the Invisible Hand and what that means more broadly, this group of very unique individuals in uh, New Hampshire responsible for the the crime we're discussing today. And I know that also some of you may have had direct involvement in this case, so I would love to get your take. So I guess to start with the Church of the Invisible Hand itself, which was run by the individuals in this case. I I was looking into them, and I guess as a starting point, they have a Facebook page, which is still up, about this church. And they had a post, which was kind of, I guess, religious mission statement of sort. Just reading from it now. My religion is the church of the invisible hand. We are agnostic deists. We believe that even if the nature was created by a god, that god does not violate nature's rules. That is, there are no miracles. If you sit on a tack, you will bleed from the ass. That's a law. So I don't really understand what that means, but I do come across language like that in some of the more libertarian corners of crypto. But I guess just as a jumping off point, what is the Church of Invisible Hand? Is it even a real thing? How does it relate to the individuals we're about to talk about and... What light, if any, does it shed on, on the potential crimes that, that these individuals perpetrated? I guess, Jennifer, just to start with you, what do you make of the Church of the Invisible Hand?
3: What is the Church of the Invisible Hand? It, it is exactly what you said. It's a church. It was established in New Hampshire. And it's connected to a group of individuals who have this shared set of beliefs. Is the church in itself of huge significance here? No, I think it's just more symbolic of what they stand for. We're, looking, we're talking about the word church and everybody has a picture of what comes into their mind when they say the word church. But what you really should remember here is that like, these are people that are connected to each other by a set of beliefs, right? Whether it's this political idea of libertarian beliefs or these senses of freedom, the church and the idea of a church is also a connection based on beliefs. And you'll see a number of churches pop up in this case. And all of them, when you read through the details of what the church stood for, really didn't have anything to do with a particular religion. They actually were inviting to all religions. It was the idea that, it, that this organization that they had established was going to be a bringing together of people based on this shared set of ideals of freedom and, and inclusion and of no government and just being able to do what you wanted to do as long as you didn't negatively affect anybody else. And that was what this was surrounded around. So I think the, the idea of this political movement connected with churches actually flowed together very well in their mindset. And that sort of sets the stage for what this community was in New Hampshire, which is sort of a center for this ideal.
1: And Alexander, and let me jump in here. Chris, uh, you were involved in this investigation. Would love to kind of hear your take on on the church itself as you sort of delved into the investigation.
0: Yeah, I you know, I think... Jennifer covered it pretty well in broad strokes. You know, I was I was tangentially involved in this case, but to me, I saw this group, the so-called Crypto 6, as, you know, a collection of friends, sometime lovers, some spouses who who found like common ground, who found community with each other in this set of libertarian ideals that That ultimately Bitcoin and personal financial freedom tied really well into that. I I do though, however, have to say that like the Church of the Invisible Hand or the Shire Free Church or the, the the numerous churches that were established by various members of the group, they served a dual purpose, right? Like there was also the purpose of, you know, sheltering their personal involvement in the financial activities. There was Probably an idea that that a church or churches would help them avoid questions of taxation by the federal government you know and i and I think it played well uh into and we can get into this deeper later, but that you know ways of avoiding questions of, of money transmission and licensing and registration this idea that like you know the, these bitcoin transactions were were donations
2: <laughs> so then it sounds like it can kind of. Well, and it's murky, but go both ways, that there is some sort of earnest belief among these people potentially in these ideals, whether they're religious or not, having to do with this pure libertarian type of financial freedom. But there's also potentially a way in which they use that ideology in a religious context as a mask here to achieve other, you know, potentially – we'll see criminal ends. But I guess maybe to color that in, let's actually get into the cast of characters that was involved in The Church of the Invisible Hand and in what would later be charged and confirmed to be a criminal conspiracy. So this really focuses on a group of people who are later called the Crypto Six, and they're all based in New Hampshire, which is a very specific context, a place you know renowned for this particular libertarian reputation, specifically in these years following the 2008 financial collapse. Let's start with Ian Freeman, kind of the ringleader of this merry brigade. He is one of those people who's not from New Hampshire, but again, in the years after 2008, makes pilgrimage there, I guess you could say. He starts radio show, a daily radio show, live broadcast from his house called Free Talk Live. He's obsessed with this libertarian movement. He's a part of the Free State Project, which is this political project to turn uh, New Hampshire into this libertarian haven and experiment until 2014, when he's actually kicked out of the Free State Project because Freeman keeps advocating for lowering the age of consent, which I guess was not necessarily part of the project's view of a uh, libertarian utopia freeman creates the uh, church of the invisible hand and the free shire church as he's doing this radio show which becomes iconic within the new hampshire libertarian community and it's around him that this broader cast of characters starts to gravitate under ian there there's aria demetzo who uh Herself is a high priestess of the Reformed Satanic Church. She ran for Congress in uh, 2022, lost, and then also ran for sheriff unsuccessfully on the platform of being a trans-Satanist anarchist. There's Richard Paul, who legally now changed his name to Nobody. He, Nobody, ran for uh, the Republican gubernatorial primary in 2020, got uh, 0.9% of the vote, Ran for mayor before that, also part of the uh, Free State Project. And then, like Chris mentioned, there are some married couples, uh, Renee and Andrew Spinella. Renee actually was dating Freeman earlier when she was 16 after running away uh, from her parents, according to some court records. No longer together with Freeman, now with Andrew Spinella. And... This entire group, yes, yeah, some changed their names, some changed their identities, all flocked to New Hampshire. A lot of them ran for office. we kind of part of this core movement, uh, this political moment in New Hampshire, one that eventually got caught up in crypto and also uh, in this church.
0: I, you know, I think all of them, this, this cast of characters, as you say, you know, they're a group of people who are all sort of self-described libertarian activists. They through the radio show Free Talk Live that Ian Freeman hosted along with Mark Edgington and and Ari as co-hosts, you know you you can watch all those episodes on YouTube. It's you know there's they they're very clearly like anti-authoritarian, very deep libertarian beliefs, personal freedom, dislike of very much dislike of, of police, state government, federal government you know all of them at one point were part of the free state project this idea that you could encourage immigration to a chunk of new hampshire to at the least influence state legislation and and state regulations you know to to get them to be more of a libertarian enclave within the united states i'm sure there are offshoots of the free state project that are kind of secessionists it's not the majority of them and and ultimately though i, I think that you know, I, I, don't, I don't think these, I don't think they came to to this, this shire-free church from Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin came to them later. I think Bitcoin became part of who they already were. And it's, it's just me speculating, right? Like, yes, they're libertarian activists. If you look at a lot of them, many of them changed their names, identities, residences. There's clearly like a drive to find an identity, a personal identity here. And maybe that brought them all together.
2: So when they did get together, and they did come together from wherever their past were, whatever their names used to be, whatever their political affiliations once were, they're all here now in New Hampshire, part of this movement, part of this milieu. How does the church start percolating? And from the church, you say that comes first, you know, Bitcoin and crypto comes second. When does, in your opinion, or the federal government's opinion, did things start to get criminal?
0: So... Yes. The church came first. The church owned and ran Free Talk Live, the radio show, which, which was used then to proselytize um, the, the church beliefs. It's my understanding that the, the church and the members came to Bitcoin uh, through an advertiser on Free Talk Live who wanted to pay them in Bitcoin and introduced them to the idea of using Bitcoin in a transactional way to avoid having to use fiat money, you know, issued by by the Treasury of the United States, right? And I think that led to this, you know, this idea that spreading Bitcoin was a way to spread personal freedom, you know, by by removing people from this system of laws and regulations and bank secrecy act requirements and know your customer requirements and um, all the things that don't don't jive well with libertarian ideology,
3: Sandra. I'd like to also like back up a little bit too, because you're you're talking about this crypto six. Like there was this meeting room, and they all got together and they came up with a plan. And and I don't think you can make it quite that cut and dry, right? There is this group of people all moving to New Hampshire that have this center ideas. They moved to this area in Keene, New Hampshire, which is this idyllic little town in southwestern. New Hampshire, that has a beautiful Main Street and a White Spire Church and 20,000 people. It's, it's New England. It's beautiful. And these people kind of are there, and they have this ideal. And this guy starts a radio show, and he gets together with a bunch of other people, not necessarily the Crypto Six. And they start this church called the Free Shire Church. And it's based on these similar ideas to this to what brought them to New Hampshire. And these people don't come together all at once. They come together little by little. So so Ian Freeman definitely starts because he is sort of a central figure. He helps to start the church, and he is running the radio show. But he runs across the other characters little by little along the way, and they become involved in different depths. But the the unifying idea is that they all do believe in these things.
2: Hmm. So so then as it's snowballing, I guess like you're saying, a little less maybe cinematically than I have in mind, a little less Ocean's Eleven potentially – um, As they start gathering together and they create this church and they say, ooh, Bitcoin, ooh, that's not text. Ooh, that's not uh, officially, you know, on the books. Interesting. And they start experimenting with it a little more. When does the snowball start really rolling downhill? Like, what are those next steps that really kick it into an organic meeting of people into what was eventually described as something of a criminal conspiracy?
3: Uh, Chris can probably expand on this more, but I would say you have this idea that they want to start getting cryptocurrency out there, Bitcoin out there, right? So they need to start finding, creating ways for people to buy it. So they need to both get a hold of Bitcoin and they also need to sell it to people. And so there's a variety of ways that that can be done. And you'll find that it can be done through these peer-to-peer uh, online websites. Local Bitcoins was a huge one. But there's also this idea of Bitcoin ATMs, Bitcoin vending machines, And so the Shire Free Church actually starts its own vending machine system throughout New Hampshire, where they set up these, the term could be ATM, they call them vending machines, some people call them kiosks, but basically the idea is you can put cash into the machines and you can get crypto out. So Shire Free Church starts running these, and that is really the first step in this whole thing that that I don't know if the criminal activity starts exactly then, but that's definitely where law enforcement starts to become suspicious about what's going on here.
2: Okay, so they found Bitcoin is something that they like that, you know, is consistent with their libertarian ideals. And then they start spreading the good word around Keene and around New Hampshire, putting up these Bitcoin ATMs. And which, by the way, you can see now in any liquor store you go into. So what's the problem? Uh, Who's getting hurt by that?
3: Uh, There kind of is and isn't a problem, right? And, And I know Ari will have something to say on this as well. But you can set up an ATM for Bitcoin. It is a perfectly reasonable and legal thing to do. But the United States government has decided that in order to protect people in these financial systems, there are rules and regulations around it, including the bank secrecy Act and some regulations that are enforced by FinCEN. And so in order to do that, you have to register as a money services business, and you need to uh, follow the rules that come with that, including filing certain types of reports, collecting information about your customers, and a lot of other things. these ideas of both having to register as well as to collect that kind of information were very much against everything that this particular group stood for so the the rules surrounding how you would do this and the way what they wanted to do and why they were doing it were in complete conflict
0: yeah i mean uh, so they were they were quite quite clear on on their uh, their advertisements on on their profiles on local bitcoins which now now closed but you know probably one of the the biggest peer to peer platforms out there and one of the ways they initially were able to sell bitcoin to their customers as well as like Paxful they have Ian FTL Ian was the account used by Ian Freeman on Paxful and you can still go on the internet and like find these profiles they're still up well reviewed trusted by Many of their customers, <laughs> like lots and lots of transactions. But it, it, they were quite clear on these profiles and on on their ATMs themselves that they, they did not want the information to come to them that would implicate them in crimes down the road. Like they did not want to know that you were buying Bitcoin so that you could buy drugs off of a darknet market or that you know, you were getting someone else to buy Bitcoin because you had defrauded them in a romance scam. And those are things that banks pay attention to, compliance officers pay attention to as part of their regulatory responsibilities under, you know, the AML regime of the United States. So they they very clearly were attempting not to do that.
2: Just as, as someone who's not extremely or far less than the three of you acquainted with how this stuff usually works, it's like, Usually would it be like, hi, I'm using this to buy drugs or hi, I'm using this to pay an assassin <laughs> to kill my ex-girlfriend? Like, is there like a form where you fill in your evil purpose for getting
0: money? It's, it's like the third checkbox down.
1: <laughs> Chris made a really important point I just also want to highlight. And that is, look, providing ATM services, as Jennifer said, is not I- illegal. In fact, there's a whole robust ecosystem of of these types of kiosks. Not only are they not doing sort of the know-your-customer that's required under the Bank Secrecy Act, which is, for our listeners, it's really the U.S. anti-money laundering regime. It's what requires money service businesses, financial institutions to to do anti-money laundering, to have controls in place so bad actors aren't taking advantage of their of their platforms. And that is required in the crypto space. It is required for ATMs uh, like the ones at issue here, for cryptocurrency exchanges, et cetera. But it went beyond that, right? Not only that, were they not doing required anti-money laundering compliance they were actually telling customers they don't want to know what why they're using their services
2: but so so those though and maybe this is i'm trying to make it simple Uh, again movie-esque but like those are two very different scenarios to me one is like hey here's an atm we're leaving out here and if you're using it to buy milk for your grandma or to buy a bunch of cocaine to send to europe you know go for it that's kind of like you know, putting on blinders versus being like, here are some criminals who we know could use some money. We're going to seek them out. We're going to tap them on the shoulder and say, Hey, could we launder this money for you? I mean, I guess they're both non-ideal scenarios from a legal perspective, but that, that difference in intent, like, were they really like going out and, and seeking, like you were saying, marketing to people who they knew probably were going to use this for bad reasons?
3: So, Sander, let's set the stage a little bit here, because I think the answer to that is gray, right? I, I, don't, I don't think it behooves anybody to say that these people were out there based on what they wanted to do to help criminals commit crimes. I, I think that goes against what the whole thing is about. The reality is they did, they did help people con- continue their crimes. But let's set the stage here. Where are these kiosks? There's one in a tap room in New Hampshire, there's one in a diner, there's one in a convenience store. You walk in, there's one in this thrift store type place, like up against the wall with clothes everywhere. They're just throwing these things up. And they, there's some rules next to them and some instructions, right? The rules next to them say, you have to use a QR code from the wallet you control. Basically, you gotta send the money to yourself. You have, it's your responsibility to keep your crypto safe and spend it safely. Like you're responsible for yourself. All there's are final. We want nothing to do with this. And do not tell our staff why you want to buy cryptocurrency. That's rule number four. Do not tell our staff why you want to buy cryptocurrency. So, I mean, one of the rules in these in as part of like knowing the KYC rules and these banking regulations are that you have to know why your customer wants to use the service you're actually required to know that and here they're specifically stating we don't want to know now yes that is a willful blindness right absolutely it's a willful blindness they're stating it right there in rule number four we don't want to know what you're doing now that aligns with with exactly what they believe in but it also is against the law now there's also some conversations if you read through the the trial where these these things came up and freeman actually explains you know, in some of this information, that he knows how people have gotten caught in the past in all of these crypto investigations. And he knows they always get caught because an undercover goes in, tells them that he's, they're selling drugs, and the person takes the money anyway. He knows this is how they get caught. So is he willfully being blind because it aligns with his ideals? Or is he willfully being blind because he knows that's how, the, that's how you get caught if you don't? It's not clear.
2: And we'll get to this when we get to the trial, because spoiler alert, there is a trial coming. But does that even matter? You're kind of saying either way, it's a crime. And whether it was really his intention for it to happen, or if he kind of was negligent in a way that made it happen anyway. Either way, I mean, in the eyes of the law, is that an important distinction at this point?
3: Ari will tell you it's a knowingly piece, and so will Chris, right? Like, you, whether whether you, you think you're a bad person or not as a relic, if you know you were breaking a law and then you broke it, that is, that is enough. But Ari and Chris will probably do a better job of explaining that.
0: I, I'm sure Ari will do the best job because he's the former prosecutor. But yeah, you're totally correct. Like it, the part, part of this, like throughout this case, there's this, this like repeated theme that all of these activities that they were involved in were not taking place in a vacuum. Right. Like as, as much as they wanted their libertarian ideal to be reality, it's not. They still live in a society that's part of a country where we have laws and regulations that apply to everybody equally. Right. And some laws require intent. Some laws require knowledge. Some require both. In the case of being, you know, an unlicensed money services business, which is a federal crime, you just commit the act or you don't you have to just knowingly, this one actually requires knowledge, but like you you knowingly like are operating a money transmitter and they did. And, and so it didn't matter if what what they believed or wanted to believe was their reality, you know, in reality, like they, they live in a world in which we have laws and regulations and they willingly and willfully, you know, try to avoid those.
1: Yeah, it, look, I, th- I think you guys did a beautiful job. I, I, I would say this, look, I think that um, by not having anti-money laundering controls in place, by violating the Bank Secrecy Act, um, which requires uh, that you have policies and procedures, that you have compliance professionals, that you do these know your customer controls to make sure you know who you're engaging with, by not doing those things, they're essentially facilitating money laundering activity right? Because there's, and and Jennifer made this great point about the four, you know, the four rules. It's like fight club, right? You know, not only to be willfully blind, but to actively say, we don't want to know when you are required to know your customer. They're essentially facilitating money laundering. And I think what came out in the investigation is that whether they knew it exactly to the client or not, or to the customer or not, they were facilitating pig butchering type cases, these types of scam activity and other illicit activity that allowed really bad bad people to launder funds in cryptocurrency because of this type of, of activity.
2: We also, Ari, sorry, you keep mentioning butchering pigs, and I imagine that's not a literal term.
1: I uh, Yeah, deep, deepest apologies, and it is a horrible term, but I think that part of the power of it resides in the horror of it. So uh, I think- we've we've talked about romance scams for many years now basically when someone reaches out via email or text message to a victim um has a conversation with them whether it's romantic or otherwise to kind of build them up to get to know them to engage with them and then ultimately there's an ask to send to send funds oftentimes in cryptocurrency in, in in more recent years and you're essentially fattening up for lack of a better description the victim and then ultimately the scammer steals all of the funds, sometimes millions of dollars of lost funds from that victim that it butchers or slaughters. And I think that that we see certainly law enforcement, NGOs, and other folks using this terminology today, partly because of the shocking nature of it, but it really is sort of harkens back to sort of this idea of a romance scam where crypto is involved and stolen.
2: That is more violent than I thought it would be, but it's also visceral. So... Okay, so back to our schemers now. So they, you know, they get together through this church, they find out about Bitcoin, they're intrigued by it, they start putting these ATMs, like Jennifer was saying, here in a pub, here in a thrift store, here and there and there and there. And like Eric, you mentioned, they're they're getting these fees that they're charging for, you know, for processing these transactions. How big does this get? Like, is this some Secret illicit money making empire. Is it a weird thing on the side with like five rinky dink machines? Like, how much money are they actually dealing with, and who is it going to? And before this all comes crashing down, like, how big does it actually get?
3: it gets big, Ooh. really big, <laughs> really <laughs> oh. big. Yeah. So, so we don't. We're not talking like takes over the United States, right? It stays in, mostly in this little corner of New Hampshire, and it stays in the realm of less than ten machines, maybe about six. But through those machines goes $10 million or so, Chris. it might be even more than that. And when you add in the local Bitcoin stuff, you're even in higher numbers, you might be into like above $10 million worth of cryptocurrency and cash flowing through this little network of, what is it? proselytization of crypto to the, to the state of New Hampshire? I'm not sure what you'd
0: call it. Crypto evangelism.
3: Crypto evangelism. <laughs>
0: So yeah, millions, millions of dollars. It was it was well, well past 10 million easily between between the peer-to-peer platforms and the ATMs. And and I think I think what came out what came out in the case too, which is like very suggestive. I I worked on a lot of cases, unlicensed MSB cases, when I was at HSI. And this one's very typical of those. But what came out in the indictment and in the case is that this wasn't limited to Keene, New Hampshire. Right? Like the victims that were like key to the violations in the indictment were in Ohio, in Georgia, in like all these other states. And they weren't just people were just going up to ATMs in Murphy's tap room and like putting 620s in and getting Bitcoin. You know, like people were wiring money to their bank and credit union accounts. People were mailing them money to a post office box, cash people were like doing cash counter deposits at banks in their own states to send money to Freeman and his co-conspirators who would then turn around and send bitcoin and so this was they were clearly operating well outside of keene new hampshire they were operating in many states well at least for customers of many states the money was flowing in from from all over and and you know it's very clear that like that The 10 to 20, 30 million, however much went through all of these accounts, far outsized the Bitcoin market in, you know, capital of jack-o'-lanterns, Keene, New Hampshire.
2: <laughs> but so when you say victims, and I know this is like area you're getting into, like, what do you mean? Because are you saying that like, there were other like scammers were taking their, scam money and transferring it to somewhere safe or how big did this get or who was negatively impacted by all this stuff when it got to this size?
3: Well real people were negatively impacted.
0: Yeah, real people. Many of them probably lost life savings, retirement savings. This is at many points, you know, you can see video interviews or or clips of, of Freeman, you know, being interviewed during his trial or after after being released from detention. A lot of the members of, of the the free Keen collective and his supporters they keep repeating this phrase of victimless financial crimes it's like it's rote it just over and over again you hear this phrase victimless financial crimes there are no victimless financial crimes every time you evade the protections we have in place for consumers under the bank secrecy act right the people who do that are doing it for a reason and the reason is the crime so there are no victimless financial crimes. The money that came through their Bitcoin ATMs, that came through the, the the Shire BTC and and you know the the Shire Free Church, like that that money, yeah, sure. There were like there were people that just wanted to buy Bitcoin anonymously, for sure. But there were definitely definitely tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, who knows how many dollars that were generated by elderly people. Vulnerable populations just being victimized by scammers, you know, they would, they would defraud those people of, of their money, their retirement, their savings, and they would have that money sent to Freeman and his co-conspirators who would convert it to Bitcoin and then send that Bitcoin to the fraudster's wallet. Not back to grandma, but the person who scammed her.
1: It's an important distinction, right? There's not an allegation here that Freeman and his co-conspirators were engaging in the fraud itself in the in the scam itself they were essentially facilitating the money laundering piece to chris's point it's just so important to point out that there are real victims there right because when they're laundering those funds through freeman through these atms through local bitcoins it's going to the scammer right it's not going back to the victim and and those people are could have lost life savings so it's, it's a really important distinction to explain what what the victim piece of this all is and just because Freeman and his co-conspirators were not necessarily involved in the initial scam itself. They're certainly complicit in the laundering and that's really ultimately where this landed.
3: Sandra, let's make it real. Let's, there's a, there's a, there's a real story here, right? So you have a widow in Ohio and her husband dies in 2017 and she meets someone online named David Brush who told her he's gonna purchase diamonds in South Africa. Now, presumably she cares about him a lot and she's incredibly vulnerable and her husband has recently died. This guy, Brush, who she's never met, convinces her to get some cash and forward it to people to go buy Bitcoin. And she transfers $25,000 to Ian Freeman. And she does this because this person she met online that presumably she's in love with because she's vulnerable told her to. And she has no idea who Freeman is or the Shire Free Church. But that is a real story of a real victim in this case, a woman in Ohio whose husband just died, who now is out $25,000. And she sent it directly to Ian Freeman because she thought she was helping the person that she thought she was in love with.
2: So before we get to how Freeman and the rest of them were tracked down for doing all of this, I guess I'm just wondering, how, how do they relate this to their church or their churches? You know, the Freeshire church, the church of the invisible hand, these like supposedly religious institutions that are, I guess, more ideological, but that go back before they knew about crypto. Like, how do they involve those religious institutions in what they're doing here with these multi-million dollars, you know, essentially money laundering operation?
3: Well, this is how this is where they start to run into the traditional banking system. So if you have a some amount of cash available and you have some Bitcoin available, you can run an ATM at small volume. But once you start to move large amounts of crypto and cash you suddenly have this issue where you need to use traditional banks to both receive these wire transfers and also to you need to use traditional regular cryptocurrency exchanges to buy more cryptocurrency. So they have to start to interact with a lot of different banks and a lot of online cryptocurrency exchanges in order to be able to get the liquidity of, of cryptocurrency and also like to deposit all this cash in to keep the system running, right, to keep it going. And these Or these entities that they're working with the banks and the cryptocurrency exchanges, they're following the rules, they're doing the right thing, they're collecting information. And so they're discovering each and every time that there are these that, you know, this guy is running some strange crypto ATM thing, and it doesn't seem to be quite following the rules. And so they, according to their own procedures, start shutting them down. And so and Freeman starts to discuss this frequently, that like he can't keep his bank accounts open. He can't keep his exchange accounts open in his own name because they're all discovering that they're evolving suspicious activity. And so they keep getting shut down. So he needs to start coming up with new accounts And he keeps and he needs to come up with ways to keep these accounts open. And he needs to come up with reasons why these accounts need to be open. And that's where some of these other people start getting involved, because some of the crypto six start opening accounts for him. And they start opening accounts in the names of the churches to explain the flow of the funds going through them. Why are you getting wires of tens of thousands of dollars? Well, it's a donation to a church. That's why people are donating to my church. And it starts to come up with a reason why you would have this much money flowing through accounts. And so that is where he starts to conduct, to commit bank fraud.
2: And I guess at that point, uh, the federal government may start to become interested in this. Am I correct in thinking that?
3: Yeah, when you start to have a lot of bank accounts shut down, the banks tend to start reporting that information widely. And you get all these reports start flagging to the authorities out there that say, hey, something fishy is going on here. And people start to notice those reports. And from what the the investigating agent said in this, and there were hundreds and hundreds of reports, he may have even reviewed thousands of these reports related to these cases.
2: So at that point, The banks are starting to report this. Hey, there's this weird stuff going on. Okay, maybe it's related to this church or what. Where does the government or the investigators looking into this go from there? And specifically... Because a lot of this stuff is not happening within the traditional banking system. Like, you know, those transfers from that, that elderly woman in Ohio to Freeman and all that stuff that's going across the country and probably across the world, it's all on the blockchain. It's not a part of our traditional banking system or the American banking system. So how do you even begin to, to find the proof you need to even know what's going on or how much money is being laundered?
3: Well, it's a mixture of both standards. Some of it's coming in through cash, remember, and it has to be transferred into crypto. And Chris was one of the experts in how you would figure out how these connections between the wire transfers going into the bank were then connecting to the on-chain stuff. So Chris, why don't you explain what sort of that looked like?
0: Yeah, it's so it's not (laughs) it's not rocket science. It's just like, you know, good old police work. But you know, when when somebody deposits cash into bank accounts. In, in some instances, depending on the amount of cash that's deposited, there's gonna be a report that's recorded by the bank, right? They're gonna file what's called a currency transaction report if it's more than $10,000. Uh, if it's less, they might file it. If, if it's like aggregated, they might file a suspicious activity report or a SAR if they can see it happening frequently enough that they're, they're aggregating amounts or they can see people are structuring their deposits. So that means like breaking it up into small amounts and going to different places, sometimes in the same day. But ultimately, you know, those those reports are going to surface to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, and, and by virtue of that, they're they're going to make their way to law enforcement investigators who pay attention to these things as signals of, of financial crimes, uh, and and that those those things may trigger investigations at that point. Um, when that happens, the investigators will will go back to traditional police work and start opening cases and. Obtaining court orders and getting search warrants and subpoenas issued so that they can get information from banks and credit unions about the account holders, about the transaction history for those account holders. When we talk about the connection between that and crypto, right, we have to remember that, like crypto, like the Shire Free Church, also does not exist in a vacuum, right? (laughs) Bitcoin doesn't stand alone yet. Maybe one day, I don't know. But right now, It's still very connected to traditional financial institutions. So when Ian Freeman went to get liquidity for what was becoming a growing, you know, Bitcoin trading operation, his money transmission business, he had to buy Bitcoin from exchanges. In order to buy Bitcoin from exchanges, you have to send, for example, you know, to Coinbase, $10,000 to buy $10,000 worth of Bitcoin. In order to send that $10,000 to Coinbase, what you actually have to do is you have to wire that money from your bank to the bank that Coinbase uses for dollars. All of those records can be obtained with legal process. And I'm sure the investigators did in this case. They found you know when, when Freeman and Spinella and Nobody and Fordham were opening accounts in their names and in, the, in the church's names at all these different credit unions and banks and they were getting shut down and then opened up at some other place, you know, you're, they were going to find wire transfers, ACH transfers, you know, automated clearinghouse transfers, out of those accounts to Coinbase, to Kraken, to Gemini, to Paxos, to these exchanges where they would buy the Bitcoin to top up their ATMs and to top up their local Bitcoins accounts to run their business.
1: I was going to say, awesome explanation in terms of sort of what's happening off-chain, and, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Would love to kind of hear a little bit about what you're seeing simultaneously on the blockchain.
0: Yeah, so like when you pair the off-chain investigation, what you're finding there with the the on-chain stuff, then you get the fuller picture of what's happening. And I think so. The on-chain investigation is super crucial to this case for a couple of reasons. So like basically, off-chain, you had all this stuff happening with Freeman and his co-conspirators, like using cash and buying Bitcoin. Once you identified those exchange accounts you get the transaction records from those exchanges. So you find withdrawals from those accounts at you know Kraken or Coinbase or Gemini. You trace on the blockchain the withdrawals from those exchange accounts. You find out where they go, right? And in this case, it turns out that most of them, a lot of them, went to mainly a wallet controlled by Ian Freeman. And that, that wallet was used to send millions of dollars to his local Bitcoins account. And, you know, it's in this case, you know, this, this wasn't like this on-chain investigation probably wasn't the most complex of on-chain investigations that were out there. I mean, but what it what it was, what the public ledger, you know, let us see is the scale of the crime. Right? Like you can you have all these disparate, you know, credit union accounts and bank accounts and all this stuff, but like the on-chain investigation really showed you where all that Bitcoin what coalesced. And you could see the volume of transactions and the value that was transacted on the blockchain. And you could see the scale of the operation they were running, the millions of dollars they were sending and then receiving.
2: So a, a few questions. One, like from all of that, the, the on-chain and off-chain forensics, did it become clear how much money these people, Freeman and his friends, were actually pocketing? Like, was this just because I know it doesn't really change things in the eyes of the law but like were they getting rich off this or was it kind of like they were keeping themselves going while sending all this money god knows where to god knows who
3: Sandra, there's a there's a piece here we we should also go over which which people always ask about the blockchain right like is it anonymous like
2: yeah
3: chris said hey there's this wallet he's buying all this bitcoin on exchanges He's moving it into this wallet that we know is his, and then he's using it to, to sell Bitcoin on local Bitcoins or to sell Bitcoin off the ATMs. But this skipped a key part there, right? Which is his wallet. Like, how did we know that was his wallet? Because it's not labeled on the blockchain, right? You don't go onto the, to the Bitcoin blockchain and see a name that says, this is Ian Freeman's wallet. So that was a key part of the investigation, is maybe a nuance that is sort of routine for, for investigators like Chris, but that the people really don't understand. The government actually had to substantiate that they knew that this wallet was controlled by Ian Freeman. And it's not one particular Bitcoin address, right? It's a group of addresses, probably over 400 from what I can tell from the evidence. So there's over 400 addresses that are all together that are out there and they they use some some heuristics or some understanding about co-spending or addresses that transact together to understand that these 400 addresses actually belong to the same group. And then they look at all the accounts the exchange accounts that are sending funds to the, those addresses, and they see who owns those. And largely, they're all owned by either Ian Freeman, or they're all owned by someone of his associates. And then they also look at where the money, the, the Bitcoin coming out of those wallets, is going to. And they see it's going to Ian Freeman's local Bitcoins accounts. They see it's going to his Paxful accounts, and they see that it's going to to provide the Bitcoin that is being purchased at the ATMs that are controlled by the Shire Free Church that are connected to Ian Freeman. So there is a there is then that, that, that sort of preponderance of evidence surrounding these 400 addresses that suggests that Ian Freeman controls them. But there's nothing on the blockchain that says that. And that is actually something the government had to prove in court. And another thing that they did as a part of all this that is kind of ex- exciting to read in the court documents is they used an undercover to buy Bitcoin at these ATMs. So an undercover went in and made purchases at the ATM so they could see exactly where the Bitcoin came from, so that they could connect to that other side of the investigation. So you've got records from the exchange, and you know who owns all those exchange accounts. And now you have transactions that the government knows comes out of those, come, came out of those ATMs, purchased by and undercover, and they see the wallet that, the, that that's coming out of. And then they put together the blockchain connections using this heuristic and co-spend analysis that uh, the government had experts look at to be able to substantiate and that that TRM's tools actually show right within the tool.
1: And and actually, like, this is a great jumping off point to this. Jennifer, stay stay with this for a second and, and zoom out a little bit. How do we put the listener at your desk? You know, what does it mean to trace and track cryptocurrency using a tool like TRM? You're sitting at a computer, right? You're using software. And because of the nature of blockchains, this software enables you to track and trace the flows of funds from those wallets that that undercover got when he when he went into that that pub and it interacted with that ATM. But just walk us through, like. As an investigator, I can't think of anyone better to ask this question of, right? Like <laughs> as an investigator sitting at your computer, what were you doing when you were investigating these types of cases?
3: It's very funny, right? Because that's what I do now is design the tools that do exactly this, right? I helped to build them. <laughs> so what you're seeing on your screen is a, is a white canvas and some some shapes like a circle or a square or something that represents the address itself, right? And lines showing the transactions, And so if you've just purchased it, you have a little circle that's showing your wallet where you just purchased those funds. And you look at the line that is the exact transaction by the transaction hash, and you look at where it came from and those addresses. Now, a good tool like like ours will label the, the, the larger virtual asset service providers, VASPs or exchanges, on the chain. So that when you trace backwards and you keep following those transactional patterns... You're going to start seeing these connection of lines finally run into a larger circle or, or some sort of thing that says this is Coinbase or this is this is Gemini because we've we layered that intelligence on. So now, you know, OK, here's an exchange and you start to get a picture of some of the entities that are out there. And, but you won't see the label for for Ian Freeman unless you put it on yourself. So you're going to start labeling addresses that, you know, and you're going to see labeled addresses that you don't that that the the tool has shown you. And you're just going to start tracing around and, and then you're also going to see that the tools are going to group things together, like I said, based on some of these heuristics. So you're going to see those 406 addresses grouped together because the pattern of transaction on the blockchain says that these are all controlled by the same entity. The tool might not know who the entity is, but they're going to say that based on the pattern of transactions, this particular group of addresses is controlled by the same.
0: Yeah, so like, so literally... You, you are connecting dots.
2: So just for a sense of timing here, like how long was it that Freeman and all of them were building up, you know, this entire operation and then once the federal government got involved and there were people at their desk you included who are putting together those dots like how long does it take to actually turn that into some sort of criminal indictment or to freeze or halt this type of activity
0: it's it's kind of a nuanced question in my experience having worked on different types of investigations financial investigations take a long time <laughs> it's not just because they they can be more complex than than some criminal cases but there's a lot of paperwork involved you have to typically involve a number of people that you know have specialized skill sets in like forensic accounting for example or blockchain blockchain tracing or you know so so they can take time this this case took a while i, I think they they probably started into their activity in around 2015 it, Ian's, Ian's local Bitcoins account was like he uploaded his driver's license in, in like February of 2016 or something to, to validate his account on local Bitcoins.
2: Is there is I mean this is any – this is an issue I'm sure psychologically for any sort of criminal investigator. But like as you're putting together these pieces and connecting these dots, as you know that these crimes are continuing to to, to occur – to be perpetrated. And you're like, all right, well, we'll get them in two years or (laughs) however long it takes. I I, I mean, I just, that must be an interesting place to be psychologically, right? Because you know, you have to be thorough, you have to do it right. But you know, these things are continuing to happen as you're building that case. I just wonder how that might feel as something that you probably all had to deal with in your day to day.
1: It's a a constant, it's a constant issue and a constant source of conversation amongst law enforcement and prosecutors and others. I, I did child exploitation cases, for example, for many years. And in terms of those cases, we moved immediately if we knew a child was going to be, was in, in danger in some way. But that was the only kind of case. Thwarting a terrorist attack, for example, is another example. But really, otherwise, you're trying to gather the best evidence you possibly can to ensure that you can prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. At a minimum, really strong probable cause to make that arrest. Because the last thing you want to do is build that case and go to a grand jury and and not get an indictment returned, or go to that judge and have that case dismissed for one reason or another. So it's a constant conversation of of how do we get enough evidence, but you also don't want to work cases forever. There comes a point when when every case needs to move forward, but it's a constant conversation that we all have during any type of investigation.
0: I think I think I think every police officer would love to catch a criminal in in the act before anyone is victimized, <laughs> but that is not often the case, and there's always pressure on, on momentum you know to to move as fast as you can but i think another another thing to mention just following on airy here is that like he mentioned you, you want to collect the best evidence to prove the case but as an investigator your job is not only to collect the evidence that that proves somebody committed a crime but also to collect evidence to to prove that they didn't and to rule that evidence out and so it, you know it's it, I think a lot of people forget that you really do have to prove the crime. You have to make sure that they're not innocent along with making sure that they're guilty.
2: So, so this goes on for, I guess then five years where, uh, Money's coming in and going out from across the country, from across the world, you know, both in person at these ATMs and sent directly to Freeman and to his associates. It's funneling through these church-related uh, accounts as donations, you know, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Eventually, that gets up to, like you said, $10, $20, 30000000 million. And then finally, in, in 2021, investigators think they have enough to stop this. So, so what happens then? I know, like Jennifer, you mentioned, they send an undercover at some point through this. They try the the money through that to, to bulk up their case. And then finally, I guess they, they release this criminal indictment. And, and, and what happens? They arrest Freeman. They arrest uh, all of the uh, so-called Crypto-6. And what happens from there?
3: From what I can tell in the documents, they had a pretty significant takedown, which means that they simultaneously arrested everybody involved in the case that they had indicted and then executed uh, a number of search warrants at the same time. So they arrested Ian Freeman, Aria de Mezzo, nobody, both the Spinellas and another individual whose charges were eventually dismissed, calling Fordham. And they also executed search warrants on a number of their residents, including the residence of Ian Freeman, which was also the radio station. I believe they executed a warrant at Aria de Mezzo's house, the Spinellas' house, and they also seized all the Bitcoin ATMs that they that they could have it find. So I think they had four locations where they took Bitcoin ATMs from. And in these warrants, they would have collected all evidence they could find related to the crime, which means they're probably going to collect all the electronic devices they can find because they may have been used in further into the crime. They're also going to seize any any documents and and fina- financial records. And there's they seized a lot of actual like money. Um, one of the things that that was that is common in these types of cases is that people that don't like the traditional finance system will often have a lot of cash. So they found a fair amount of cash at, at Ian Freeman's residence. And they also found a lot of crypto like items. There's physical Bitcoin. So actual like pieces of metal that are imprinted with the private keys. And they seized a lot of value in that.
2: So they bust in everyone's houses simultaneously. They bring everyone in. These are the charges. Well, I guess one, I want to hear what what the actual charges are were that were filed here. But then, two, I'm curious to know like uh, what, what what was the tune that everyone was singing? Was it like this is my financial freedom? Like I, like you were saying earlier, this is a victimless crime, or we haven't done anything wrong, or you know, what's that that first reaction from everyone who's arrested?
0: So so again, I I think when when the arrest happened, there was. You, could, you say the tune that everyone was singing, right? There was there was this repeated, there was this repeated phrase, it's like that that the supporters were using outside when they were protesting, uh, that the members of the collective were using when when they were released, when they were interviewed. So you know, everyone kept saying this is this is an indictment of Bitcoin, this this is a this is a criminal case against Bitcoin, and that was the sort of the tune they were singing. But I think it's important to remember here that that was not this case. This case was not charging Bitcoin with being criminal. This case didn't seek to prove that that Bitcoin was buying, selling, using Bitcoin was a crime. It's not. But just like people use dirty dollars for dirty crimes, people use Bitcoin for crime too. And that's that's what this case was about.
2: So at this point, there's fraud involved. There's money laundering. There's the KYC stuff they ignored. There's the... uh... Lying about what the bank accounts are for and all those transfers are for. Accumulating all that, Jennifer, what was actually charged, criminally speaking?
3: So on the first point, the first that first takedown, there was an indictment that had already been pushed through and there were a first set of charges. But I want to let you know that there were also there was also a superseding indictment later on against Ian Freeman and Ariel DeMezo that had additional charges. But the initial charges against the group were operation of an unlicensed money services business. Uh, wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and money laundering.
2: So those are some pretty serious charges you probably don't want hanging over you. Does the group stay solid? Do they stay together? Do they keep singing the tune of this is a war on Bitcoin and we're not giving up? Uh, or is there a lack of solidarity among, among that crowd? Like, like how, how, how strong do these uh, co-defendants stay? And uh, do they all continue to contest the charges up until a potential trial?
3: Well, there's a lot going on there, Sander. I mean, there's an entire organization that, that it starts to be created in support of them. And that is actually where the term Crypto6 comes from, because there is a website associated with this and and the community backs around these people to try to support them. And they kind of go in different ways, this group. It's it's not all at once that, that they all agree to do the same thing. And actually, nobody stands in protest for an extended period of time and stays in jail and doesn't even want to go out on bail because... He believes that you know this is so wrong that he's going to stay there. But eventually, all of them plead guilty to some charge, at least one charge, except for Ian Freeman, who goes to trial later on. Two of the Crypto Six end up testifying against Freeman at his trial, and those are Colleen Fordham, who had all her charges dropped, and uh, Renee Spinella, who is his former girlfriend. The others did not testify at the trial, but did plead to. Less than all of the charges that were charged. Again, someone in area can explain probably why that would why it would turn out that way.
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, in, in any case like this, and this is a great example. There is your investigation, and part of that investigation is hoping for uh, help from witnesses in the case, and sometimes those are co-conspirators. And once a case is charged, the prosecutors sort of step in and start to have conversations with defense counsel on potentially gaining cooperation. And one thing that cooperation can allow for is a request from the government to the court for a lighter sentence, or even potentially to have the government dismiss charges in the case. So it's all part of this conversation around sort of cooperation. But the reason cooperation is important is not just because someone is sort of snitching or ratting someone out, but because it's really, really powerful corroborating evidence, right? When you have someone who is involved in the scheme, who can actually talk you through how, you know, how the process worked, how one set up the the ATMs, how they move money through the church, uh, it could be really powerful evidence. And that's what essentially we saw here. It's also constantly trying to sort of build up the ladder. And obviously, Ian Freeman here was the top of the ladder, which is likely why he ultimately went to trial in the case, as opposed to his co-conspirators that, that didn't. You know, at, at some point, you don't have that much to give. And that was essentially probably Ian Freeman's plight here.
2: So when some of Freeman's once uh, church associates or fellow clergymen and women flip and you know cooperate with the government is there anything they reveal either about what was done or about their underlying motives that kind of changes the narrative a little bit like did those people maintain that the what we're dealing with here is a war on uh, cryptocurrency or was there some concession that they were aware that they were facilitating? The furtherings of crimes,
3: they 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 pled guilty, right? They admitted to the crime. What what they actually believe in their hearts, I don't think any investigator is going to speculate on. But they did, in the course of this, plead guilty to a crime and admit in you know admit to doing what that that charge said they did. Um, and they did it in different timing too, right? Like there's three of them that plead earlier. One one of them shortly around that same time has their charges dropped, and then. Aria de Mezzo and Ian Freeman's cases go, go much longer. So they're all arrested in 2021. A group of them plead in the springtime of 2021, a group of them plead or the winter of 2021, a group of them please a year later. And then Aria de Mezzo later pleads in, I'm trying to see exactly the date, but she pleads later on in 2022. And then in late 2022, Ian Freeman goes to trial. So it doesn't all happen at once, right? This is a gradual process. And in each time one of them pleads, they do admit to the crime.
2: So Ian Freeman, you know, he's the uh, last remaining hanger on. Like you mentioned, he went to trial in December. Where did that process end up?
3: So in October of 2023, after a number of delays, he was sentenced to 96 months of prison, two years of supervised release, and a fine of $40,000. He was facing 17 years, so 96 months of prison, leads to only eight years. So that's not the maximum he was facing. And the $40,000 the judge said was set to be on the low end so that they could use the maximum amount to um, pay restitution to the victims. And the amount of restitution he is going to be required to pay is still to be determined at a later date.
2: I guess the question I have is like, what was this all for? And obviously, you don't need to answer that question if you're prosecuting these crimes or even investigating them. But like, did they make a lot of money themselves? Were they charging huge fees for this, or was this just something, regardless of the huge risk and pretty substantial likelihood that they were going to get caught, just something that they wanted to have exist in the world—a means for anyone, no matter what they were doing, nefarious or otherwise, to have access to to non-fiat money? Like, what what picture is there of? of why they did this? Or was this just a a gross miscalculation of like cost and benefit?
3: Chris probably has a lot of color as to the why. He spends a lot of time digging into some of the statements that they've made, but I can tell you about the amounts, right? So they were charging between five and 15% fee on top of that. If you think of what a bank usually charges, it's somewhere below 5%, probably below 3% in fees. So to buy Bitcoin, from them costs you a lot of money, which also sort of tips, like gives you a better sense of who might be doing this, right? You can buy your, your crypto from a, a legitimate cryptocurrency exchange for a much lower fee than you could from, from these guys. So you are willing to pay a high a premium to to not be able to share KYC. So they're playing, So there's they're getting a large fee now. Wh- why they're getting this large fee and wh- whether they intended to profit this much, like I, I haven't listened to enough of their general statements to to know that. But I do know that they seized close to $3 million in cash and cryptocurrency from Ian Freeman at the time of his arrest. So that also means that he somehow had ended up with $3 million. I suspect that it, a lot of that came from these particular activities.
0: Yeah, I've, I've looked into reading this stuff. I mean, their statements, I, the, the church documents, I, I can only speculate. On whether you know they thought it was worth it, if if what they did they feel got them closer to making the world progress towards this vision of of personal financial freedom and peace, but you know just like Jennifer said, I I, I have my doubts that it was entirely altruistic when you're charging a seven to fifteen percent fee on transactions. You're profiting off of what you're doing. The fact that they seized three million dollars. I mean, one one of the things they seized was this hundred Bitcoin like etched coin, which is worth a ton. Like when you seize that much money out of out of a house, you know, or houses, like it begs the question, like what was that money intended to be used for? Were they gonna build a big new Shire church? Were they going to like start an exchange of their own so they could spread Bitcoin to more people more quickly? I didn't I didn't see any of that anywhere in in anything that that you know that you can find if you look into their their statements and, and listen to the radio show and, and and look at some of their interviews. It it's a lot of money to be profiting with no clear use.
1: There there is a very legitimate libertarian ethos that was the beginning of and runs through cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, right? I mean, the the, the power and promise uh, is this idea of a decentralized financial system where you don't have to have intermediaries that cause time and great time and expense in transacting, that Jennifer and I can transact directly peer-to-peer without a middleman, right? There is so much power in that, this way to send funds cross-border for remittances and, uh, and aid and other types of of use cases flowing outside of the government control right totalitarian regimes can't touch this because it moves outside of of their purview and I, there's a really really compelling story around this this is not that story right these were people who saw opportunity and ideology kind of meeting and saw a way to justify the opportunity with ideology and they were profiting off of people who were committing crimes in, in some respects right and, and in my in my view very much sort of profiting off of the illicit underbelly of this crypto ecosystem that is growing and flourishing and i think that was really the promise the, the problem here and i think that the, the the investigation and the court documents that jennifer and chris so eloquently went to kind of really speak to that that this was about profit and opportunity not about ideology the thing i mean and there's a lot of threads here that i find really interesting
2: but the fact that, for example, this Church of the Invisible Hand, and, you know, they maybe if you think of them as kind of ridiculous creeds and monologues that they generated online, or this whole ethos of a church that they constructed, that that stuff existed, like Jennifer was saying earlier, before they even knew about crypto or, you know, got really into Bitcoin potentially. And so that they're probably is something there that is genuine about these peoples you know they moved to New Hampshire from wherever they came from they you know ran for office changed their names upended their lives in the name of this political ideology but then when it also served this purpose to benefit them financially and we can never know exactly but it seems like that financial imperative kind of won out and I don't know. There's just something about that that, you know, in the the criminal sense or basically in the sense of whether they were guilty of these crimes, you know, as we've said, that doesn't really matter. But then there's this other question, more of a narrative question of are these people heroes or martyrs or vigilantes or are they people who, you know, wanted to make a fair amount of money in a way that accumulated a ton of money very quickly off the books? and and airy like you said even if they weren't you know doing this for for self for self enrichment um there could still be parts of this that bump up against our legal system but it seems like maybe at least in this case that wasn't exactly the core of what was happening
1: yeah i think that's really i think that's all really fair i mean i think that there the the libertarian ethos kind of runs through this case i think where the rubber meets the road and chris and, and jennifer are even closer to this is the facilitating of the sort of scam and fraud activity that was occurring right this they provided an off-ramp for for cyber criminals and scam artists and others. Who were not only taking advantage of victims but taking advantage of this overall crypto ecosystem that one is, is, is building in the first place right no one is going to trust to put their funds on an exchange or or even send peer-to-peer if they believe that they're going to be stolen or scammed or hacked and they were contributing to that the very sort of antithesis of that of the kind of crypto spirit the crypto ethos right people taking advantage of each other and they were preying on that. They were facilitating that type of activity. That to me is where the rubber meets the road. The other stuff, I I, I tend to agree with, with with where you were going with that, Sander. And that is, you know, hey, look, we want to be able to empower people to transact peer to peer, to transact in this decentralized way. It was this facilitating scam type activity that I think to me was is the the the, the obviously criminal activity here.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I would I just like to jump in on that as well. Like, it's. I'm sure there was a genuine desire to make the world a better place, right? You know, but like, it's one of these, it's almost like the old, it's one of those cases of like the old, I do as I say, not as I do, right? (laughs) Like, there are different ways to bring Bitcoin to the world. And with greater personal freedom that Bitcoin offers also comes greater personal responsibility, right? Like, no one's looking over your shoulder to make sure you're spending that money in, you know, the safest way. Right? So it's on you. And, you know, there are different ways to, I think, push, you know, the promise of crypto, you know, throughout the world. And, you know, I just, I just listened to Anita Posh be interviewed on a different podcast. And, you know, she, she works with a crypto consortium. She wrote a book on how to, like, learn Bitcoin. And she traveled to Africa to teach people how to have self-sovereign wallets and spend bitcoin with each other and, and avoid scams you could do that or you could put out a bunch of bitcoin atms in keaton new hampshire and charge 10 percent for transactions to sell bitcoin for cash <laughs> so that's i don't know which choice do you want
2: Well, I think that's as good a place as any to end it. Uh, Thank you, Jennifer and Chris, for joining us on this journey into the spectacular and bizarre world of the Church of the Invisible Hand. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.
3: Thank you, Sandra. It was great to be here.
2: We'll be back again soon with another exploration into the world of crypto crime alongside the experts at TRM. I'm Sandra Lutz from Decrypt Media. And I'm
1: Ari Redboard from TRM Labs. And this is Crime 3.